1: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Early in March of 1984, the Ohio newspaper the Columbus Dispatch began the tale of a 14-year-old girl who was undergoing a terrible ordeal. Objects in her home began to fly across the room and smash. Clocks ran faster than normal. Silverware in China flew and broke. Several witnesses reported seeing these terrifying events, and a newspaper man caught photos of a telephone flying through the air in front of the frightened teen. Her name was Tina Resch, a foster child. She was in the care of a couple who, over the course of 31 years, would take care of over 250 foster children. Was young Tina just seeking attention? Was she faking these events? Or was she being plagued by the horrifying paranormal phenomena known as a poltergeist? It's actually quite
0: unlike anything we've
2: ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape,
3: part man. In Loch Ness, a 24 mile long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
0: Monster
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith. Together with my friends Ben Radford, managing editor of Skeptical Inquirer, and linguist, blogger, and paranormal investigator Dr. Karen Stolzno, we take a look at a variety of scary phenomena and put it under the cold light of science. Today we're going to talk about poltergeists. In paranormal lore, a poltergeist is a noisy or mischievous spirit which manifests itself by terrorizing its victims with a variety of telekinetic phenomena. Objects fly through the air and smash. Sometimes even the victims themselves are thrown through the air. Homes are pelted with rocks that seem to come from nowhere. Windows break. Mysterious noises fill the air. As far as hauntings go, it's exactly the kind of haunting you would never want to go through, but which would be a boon for skeptics of the paranormal to be able to investigate. One of the drawbacks of ghost investigations is that it's often difficult to capture the phenomena and measure it, and you end up with hours of video footage of nothing, audio tapes that are blank, and a bunch of anecdotes about the things that were happening before you showed up to take a look. In 1984, Tina Resch was having a bad time. Objects were hurling around her, her foster parents were hiding anything that could break and cut her or her foster siblings. Newspapers and magazines and TV crews were hounding her, and scientists of the paranormal, skeptics, and believers alike wanted to examine her and her claims. One group in particular wanted to have a look, members of PSYCOP. They sent three representatives along to investigate, including James the Amazing Randy. But when they got to the Resch home, Mrs. Resch would not let Randy inside. He was not allowed to examine Tina or enter the home. A few days later, one of the TV crews filming the phenomena caught Tina moving a lamp and then claiming that she hadn't done it. With her trick exposed, many began to believe that she'd made up the whole thing, and others said that she was doing that to get the TV crews to catch their phenomena and get out of her home. Dr. William Roll, a parapsychologist from West Georgia College, felt that Tina's case was legitimate and he studied her intensely. Meanwhile. Randy and his PSYCOP crew did their own research and came to very different conclusions. This year, at the amazing meeting number eight, the incredible skeptics gathering that the James Randi Educational Foundation puts together each year, the hosts of Monster Talk had the opportunity to meet in person and interview James Randi about this particular case. We'll hear that in just a moment. But first, let's have some
0: Monster
2: Talk. (laughs) So tonight's topic is Poltergeist, not the movie. Although I did enjoy the movie. So poltergeist means noisy ghosts. Um, I've read a lot of stories about poltergeist. I suppose you guys have too. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it seems like traditionally um, a lot of the poltergeist stories start out with rocks being thrown at the house. Like rocks hitting the roof, rocks being tossed. I'm not sure why stones, you know, breaking windows. Um, And then move on to...
0: Well, there's some crossover there with Bigfoot.
2: Isn't there? <laughs> I never really thought about that before, but
1: it depends on where you are, I suppose. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Uh yeah, You're there right? have been cases of Bigfoot throwing stones allegedly and, and and uh hitting trees with sticks.
0: Bigfoot poltergeists.
2: That's right. Well that would be the uh, paranormal polter. Uh, Living
1: in glass houses.
2: Paranormal Bigfoot.
0: <laughs> uh the moral yeah. moral Bigfoot. <laughs>
2: Yeah, Bigfoots who live in glass houses, um, wait. Shouldn't
1: throw a poltergeist.
2: That's right. Should not throw poltergeist. That's a good rule. Uh,
0: i <laughs> that one, yeah.
2: That's something I could use almost every day in my conversation. Sorry. sorry. You've given us a bumper sticker, Ben. So. Glad
1: to be of service. Monster
2: talk. Bigfoots who live in glass houses should never throw a <laughs> Oh, hmm. the people of Michigan. So you were
0: talking about some of the common claims of poltergeists.
2: Right, right. They they tend to start out with um, uh, stones being thrown um, and then move into objects moving, um, uh, various kinds of uh, physical manifestations, teleportations, apportations, as in things disappearing and reappearing. All our Harry Potter fan listeners will know what that means. There are uh, almost always, in these cases one or more children involved. And usually one of those children is considered to be the center of the haunting.
0: Yeah. And usually, uh, paranormalists claim that there's some link between the child and maybe puberty and, um, their, their abilities being related to their sexuality somehow.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that that is a common claim, uh, in the same way that the X-Men comic book usually has mutants, um, becoming, um, and In coming into their powers at the same time as their sexual uh, maturity begins to happen, uh,
1: I, th- I, th- I was going to say I think one of the one of the claims that I've often come across is the is the notion that children are by their very nature uh, more open to uh, the, the paranormal or the mysterious, and that somehow as we become adults um, we close our minds off to the possibility of ghosts or you know monsters or spirits or what have you, and so that. Uh, it 's this sort of weird notion that that uh, the more educated and the more experienced you become uh, the less uh, in tune you are if you will with with these sorts of things
0: hmm. I've heard that. Uh,
2: on the skeptic side, I think we tend to think uh, there 's children in the case the the children are centered in the case because children are tricky little guys and girls who throw things and make it look like ghosts are doing it i, I It almost yeah.
0: Yeah. By the same token, I think people could say, oh, well, children would never lie about these things, and they're innocent, and so it could go either way, the argument.
2: I think that would be people without children. who would
0: say that. <laughs> Okay, that's me.
2: People with children... No, they lie. They lie a lot and they start lying early.
1: <laughs> well, they know their own children do. They may, they may yeah. have different expectations of other people's
2: children. I suppose that's possible. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. No, I just, I, th- I think it's ironic how, um, a paranormalist might try to figure out how the hormonal changes of a person going through puberty could be equated to, you know, becoming a focus or a gateway for spiritual activity that also requires that whatever phenomena is taking place is indeed paranormal. And I think that's where it typically breaks down in these cases. Um, when it comes time to investigate and bring in the skeptics and the science to see what's really going on. Almost every case, it turns out that some form of trickery is taking place and the skeptics say, aha, there was trickery taking place. Therefore we can't trust any of these claims. And the believers say, aha, aha, the kids did a trick on the skeptics, but really, all the rest of the claims, totally true. You know? Yeah,
0: although they'll come up with the argument that they we're not necessarily trying to trick skeptics, but we're trying to to give them some example of the phenomena so that they can you know, pay closer attention to it and believe in, in everything else that's happening. So they're just trying to give them an immediate example.
2: Yeah, it it's it comes down in a lot of ways like any, any traditional haunting, I think, um, where... In the end, you have um, a story about what happened, and the stories are typically far more dramatic than any of the actual physical evidence. Although, I have to say, some of the poltergeist cases have some great photographs. Phones flying through the air, TVs, you know, uh, vases being broken, uh, people, children flying through the air uh, in the case of the, uh, what's that Australian? Um,
0: the Gyra uh, ghost? Is it the gyra ghost I was thinking of? No,
2: I don't think so. I think it was the infilled poltergeist I was thinking of. That's right. So yeah. The infill one was from the seventies. And you said the gyra. I think that one's
0: That one's from the twenties, the and 20s. then there was another case in the nineties that I was uh tangentially involved in. It was called the Humpty Doo poltergeist.
2: <laughs> and Sounds spooky. It also like breakfast. Very at spooky.
0: <laughs> and I remember watching uh <laughs> news segments about this and uh, basically it was like a current affair or a TV show like that went around to the house of uh, these people who were experiencing poltergeist activity and they claimed that they'd brought around a number of priests, uh, Orthodox priests and Catholic priests to exercise the premises and that these people were scared and had uh, taken off and weren't able to help them at all. So this TV crew set up shop there for a week and filmed everything that was taking place and in uh, on one day, I think about uh, towards the end of the recording, they caught one of the residents throwing a knife. It was just picked up uh, in a reflection in a mirror Ooh. and uh, then there was uh, a case of a number of sceptics from the Australian sceptics who went in to investigate the premises and they found uh, the batteries had been flying about and implements and tools and things. And they found that when they looked at the uh, the fans that they had, they were covered in dust except for sections where there were battery-sized uh, clean sections. So obviously they'd been placing things on the fans, switching them on, which was spinning them around the room. Um, fans would spin around the room and, and hurl all of these items, making it seem as though it was poltergeist activity. So what happened in the end is these people, they were just renting the property and they were booted out.
2: <laughs> wow. And why did they call it Humpty Doo? Because I really never got past that part.
0: That was the name of the town. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's in the Northern Territory, I think. I'll have to look that up. But If was, I ever um, move,
1: that
2: seems like a really great place to live.
1: You I mean, should have hit up to Dildo, Newfoundland.
2: <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> it mean, its belt. How... Like,
1: D-I-L-D-O. It's, it's a nice place I've been know. <laughs> Well, that, that that case reminds me of uh, there's a um, there's a woman named Denise Jones, and she, several years ago she wrote a book. I think it was called The Other Side. And uh, in in her book, which I read when it, when it first came out, she talks about uh, it's a fairly thick book, and it reads much like uh, like maybe one of Jay Anson's, Anson's mo- uh, novels, you know, the Amityville type stuff. But it's about uh, the, the it's supposedly the true story of her and her um, her family, particularly her son. Uh, who presumably was manifesting ghosts and spirits and having all sorts of, as is often the case, uh, many of the things happened when the son was uh, by himself alone, uh, which you know raises big red flags for me, but uh, she apparently believes that it's, uh, it's a real case.
2: We're going to talk about the Columbus, Ohio poltergeist case, uh, the Tina Resch case. As we talk about this right now, we've already recorded an interview with James Randy, and I have to say that was really interesting to see how much, emotion, how much raw emotion was still uh, in Randy regarding this case, uh, considering he wasn't allowed to do a lot of the investigation he wanted to do.
0: Seems like she was deeply troubled after those events.
2: Yeah, I think so. Well, it sounds like she was deeply troubled as well because she wanted to find out who her parents were. And Randy's theory was at the time, I don't know what he thinks about it now, but his theory at the time was she wanted to find out who her parents were um, and thought that this would be a great way you know, to get media attention so maybe she could find out because she'd been in foster care for almost, you know, 10 years at that point, maybe more. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and maybe just to get attention in general.
2: Yeah, that, that, that's the thing about these poltergeist cases. The, the child who's at the center of the haunting um, or who is doing the effects, if, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. We'd be skeptical. But the, whoever, the child at the center of the haunting uh, does get a lot of attention. And in some cases... The child at the center of the haunting, it seems like they go and get a lot of psychiatric care. Um, and, and a lot of times when they come back from this kind of care, um, the haunting stops. So, whether that means they've gotten older and the doorway's shut or, you know, they, they got cynical and, and stopped believing because the doctors told them there's no such thing or because they got wise and stopped throwing things, you know, regardless, a lot of times psychological or psychiatric care Seems to be involved in the solution to these cases.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, there's definitely that aspect to it. I, I, I personally would be a little cautious about about attributing too much to that. I mean, there are, there are many, many, many people and kids and children who want attention who don't fake uh, ghost phenomena, and there are plenty of people mm-hmm. who fake ghost phenomena who aren't necessarily doing it for attention. So, I think that there's there's certainly a strong correlation in in the poltergeist cases, but mm, I, good point. It's you know, it, it's it's. Um, Correlation, there, not necessarily certain, causation, yeah. right? Right, there's more to it.
2: Yeah, absolutely, right. And I didn't mean to imply that those people are mentally ill necessarily. Yes, you did. No, no I'm <laughs> just saying that, that I've just noticed that there that happens in a lot of these cases, that the person's taken away for study or care in a, in a hospital for a while. It just seems to be a recurring theme when you read about these things. So,
0: They're very special cases, aren't they?
2: They Well, they are. They're very unusual. Uh, you know, There's a big difference between you guys look, the TV's flying across the room, and you know my uncle harry says that there's a ghost in the attic you know that that's a, it's a different thing altogether all houses make creaky noises but all houses don't have things flying across the room and it's the it's i think it's the the physical or the, the, the telekinesis type effects where things are moving um that are one of the hallmarks you know to say noisy ghost you know hearing banging noises that's all pretty creepy but not as creepy as being levitated by a ghost or thrown by a ghost or you know having oh faces and glasses and knives, you know, being thrown. So.
0: I wonder if there have been any cases where the phenomena has been, uh, hasn't been attributed to one of the members of the family and that uh, it was just a series of natural occurrences that was causing things to be moved or disturbed in the house, probably to a lesser degree than the examples we see with things flying through the air.
2: Oh, I would have to uh, think so. Yeah. Sure. Only that would not be a famous case, would it?
1: right there's a, there's sort of a self-selecting yeah. uh, you know case there where the the, the solved ones are g- not going to be making you know the air as much as uh, as the mysteries
2: mm-hmm. right in, in my own personal haunting experience which i think we've talked about maybe we haven't but i one of the one of the phenomena i had um in addition to the classic sleep paralysis which is creepy enough in its own is um i had exploding light bulbs um, which is a very strange thing to happen. And if you are inclined to think the paranormal is going on, nothing confirms it quite like exploding light bulbs. It is fantastically disturbing to see.
0: So it happened more than once.
2: Yeah, it happened more than once, and it it happened and I, well, and again, it's like saying I I found something in the last place I look. It happened when I was there. You know, I didn't usually come home. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's just a coincidence, I suppose. But it happened when I was there because I would turn on the lights. And the light bulb would explode. You know, um, probably happened more than four times. I don't know how many times, but more than four. It got to the point that I felt like I had a pretty good system for getting the exploded light bulb out of the socket. Um, but but I was talking to Ben about it. It was really kind of bugging me. What it? I, I, the only thing I had in common with all those case, all those incidents is that that I had bought a bunch of light bulbs in bulk, and what I probably had was a bad, you know crate, you know, a, ba- a bad case of light bulbs. And I would say that when those light bulbs uh, depleted, when I no longer had any, I never had that experience again. So... And
0: that was the only thing that occurred? No, no, was there were serious? other things.
2: Uh, no, I had a lot of things. But the problem is, like in my case, there were other haunting effects happening, but they all maybe had a, a natural explanation. I think they... Now I think they do. But since I was looking for other symptoms, I was finding them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. If a door closes by itself, you it could just be a difference in the air pressure when you have the air conditioning on. You know, it could be a lot of things. It could be a misbalanced door. Um, but if you've already had a light bulb explode that day and then a door slams, that's a ghost. I mean, it's
0: start linking them <laughs> nearly,
2: <laughs> nearly. So, and, and if you ever get sleep paralysis <laughs> and you have it feel like someone crawls on you, I mean, that goes back for years and years in our culture. Uh, the stories of, you know, the, the nightmare or the, or the little, uh, oh, was it the, um, I'm gonna forget, not the succubus, the incubus, uh, <laughs> crawling up on your chest at night, you know. Um, when, if you actually experience that, that the paralysis and the feeling of pressure on your chest, it, it feels for all the world like there's someone in the bed with you and you can't get out from under them. Um, and you don't have to be told by somebody that that se- that feels paranormal, to make that feel paranormal. Because, you turn on the lights and there's nobody there, but yet you clearly felt the sensations of someone there. It's extremely disturbing. It was only because of good skeptical television programming that I even learned about this. I'd never read about it because when I was investigating hauntings, I went to the paranormal part of the bookshop, you know, or to the library and those places only tell you the, the, the supernatural explanation. So mm, those
0: are the greatest options, aren't they?
1: Right,
2: So they're the easiest to find. You know, uh, so later what on, a,
1: what a shame there's not a new book out that, uh, that deals with that.
2: <laughs> Why, Ben? What are you referring to? The, the, the scientific criminal investigation? Is that yeah, it? I think
1: I think uh, in I think have heard think of it that has. Book. I think it has contributions by by you two, if I'm not mistaken. So, <laughs> I think so.
2: One more thing you need to know before we hear our interview with James Randy, and that's to do with the current status of Tina Resch. In 1994, she pled guilty to the murder of her own three-year-old daughter in order to avoid having a death penalty trial by jury. She's currently serving a life sentence in a Georgia prison. I'll have a little more information on that after the interview.
0: Monster Dog.
2: James the Amazing Randy is an 81-year-old man with a white beard, but he's more than that. He's also a magician, a performer, and a paranormal investigator. He's worked for decades to promote critical thinking and through his organization, the James Randi Educational Foundation, to seek out fakers and expose charlatans who prey on the unwary with a variety of claims of the paranormal. He's famous for exposing trickery by people such as Peter Popoff, Uri Geller, and many, many others. We caught up with Randi at the amazing meeting number eight in Las Vegas, Nevada. All right, so I thought I would ask you about a case that you weren't allowed to investigate. Um, If you remember this, the Tina Resch case, uh, she was a uh, poltergeist victim, uh, and uh, I think William Roll, the parapsychologist, was on that case. What do you remember about that?
3: Oh, well, I remember Tina Resch very well, and and Bill Roll's uh, input on the thing. Uh, That was a tragedy, total tragedy uh, in the long run, and... um I suppose you know how she ended up.
2: I do. She ended up with a life sentence in uh, prison. So
3: Yeah. For murdering her own child. It's just, just incredible.
2: Yeah, I've actually got to go back. I wanted to read some of the newspaper articles about that. So yeah. I, I'm not actually familiar with what went down with that case. But. Well,
3: I have um, serious differences uh, with Bill Roll, as you might imagine. And I hold him singly responsible for Tina Rush's uh, tragedy. Really? Because he encouraged her. He got her out to wherever it was where they were researching her. I've forgotten now. And um, he treated her like a queen. He spoiled her as much as he possibly could to get every, uh, every bit of information out of her and every bit of a performance out of her. And uh, I think that was very, very unethical, if not downright criminal, for him to do a thing like that. I highly resent it, and uh, I have never spoken to Bill Roll since.
1: Wow. Well, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the case, can you give us a sort of a, a encapsulated uh, the story of the. Yeah,
3: well, <laughs> the poltergeist phenomena. Of course, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with what we mean by poltergeist, uh, the mischievous spirit, in translation. And uh, Tina rush was a little girl who found out that she could do tricks that she could toss things about and she could uh, get away with it without being detected. And. Uh, she was uh, photographed uh, by a, friend, a fellow named Fred Shannon, I think it was, uh, who was the official photographer for the Columbus Dispatch, I believe. Was it uh, Yeah. And um, the dispatch ran with it. The media, uh, in many cases, becomes totally irresponsible uh, in that they don't care whether something is true or not. They only care whether or not it makes a sensation and it's going to sell the product that they're, they're peddling at the moment. And uh, this happens so, so frequently now that I have lost a great deal of my um, uh, dependence on, the, well, faith and I should say, the, um, the media in general. Uh, I, I find it reprehensible that they would uh, behave like that, but the dollar seems to be the bottom line. And with the Columbus Dispatch, they gave this thing a runaround that um, is unforgivable. Now, the management has changed over the years. Recently I needed a uh, photograph that was taken at that time and uh, I applied for it uh, just by simply make a phone call and they sent it to me. But they explained to me also that the management had changed completely. All the personnel was uh, was switched around and gone or dead or whatever and that they didn't have any uh, compunctions about doing this. So I got this for my next book which will be A Magician in the Laboratory. Plug, plug. <laughs> and, uh, yes, Tina Resch... Uh, was spoiled by Bill Roll who after this whole event after she had been exposed as a trickster caught red-handed doing the tricks he still supported her because he wanted to get a story out of it, but he wanted to get a book out of it and he got a book out of it I think it's simply called The Poltergeist, is it? Uh, yeah, I think that's yeah. and yeah. Bill Roll got a book out of it and he made some money out of it, good for you Bill thanks a lot, and you ruined a young girl and you, you well I can't hold him responsible for the death of the child but uh, in encouraging tina rush to behave the way she did uh, he was responsible for the tragedy and uh, i have no uh, problems uh, assigning blame to bill roll for that and uh, i feel very very badly about it because tina rush was uh, a child who was taken over by the media taken over uh, by a parapsychologist in in doing that um, uh, it, it caused the tragedy it brought about the tragedy uh, one way or another It's, it's that's a long and, and involved story
1: hey it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy
2: price? well why didn't you say so? just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels so whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City go Kevin or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the Priceline app today your savings are waiting
3: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag,
2: we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy,
1: UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot.
2: So who's to say that
3: there's not alien species that are Sasquatch?
1: Like I've seen a ghost...
2: and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and WagOn.
3: But um, the bottom line on this thing is that Tina Rush was catered to uh, by the Columbus Dispatch. Uh, when they uh, were visited by me, I had to use all kinds of subterfuge in order to get information from them. Uh, well, I'll give you one example. I uh, wanted to get uh, original prints of the pictures that uh, Fred Shannon, the photographer, had made because I was sure there was evidence in those photographs. And indeed there was. It's blatant. It's right there. Uh, We found out as a result of studying the contact sheet that, (laughs) unbelievably, that uh, Fred Shannon was told by Tina Resch, who was the subject of the photographs. She's the one that he's there to photograph while these phenomena take place. She instructed him to cover his eyes and turn away until he heard whoo, 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 whoo from her. That was the little cry that she gave. And then he was to press the shutter. So he didn't see what he was photographing and he didn't see what came before it or after it. Wow. And he went along with it because he wanted the photographs and the Columbus Dispatch wanted the photographs and they got them and they got them exactly falsified the way she wanted them falsified. She was running the show. She was in charge. The photographer wasn't. The closed dispatch wasn't. The parents weren't. No, the little girl was in charge of it and she was enjoying the position of power that she had.
2: It's kind of amazing that they would fall for that. That's, that's no, they, they didn't fa- well, they, they fall. Well, they, they wanted the they, story. They
3: wanted the story, and they
2: gleefully fell for right, it. Right, because they wouldn't have written that part, right? No, so, no, no, no. They, they didn't part-
3: describe it that way. No, yeah. they did not describe it that way. But when you see the, the context you know, what I did, I, I didn't finish my story there. I should. I, um, I asked at the desk I, when I went into the club's dispatch, I wanted to know if I could get prints. And, oh, yes, you can see our photo room. And, okay, they... They directed me there, and I went in and saw the receptionist there. And I said, "You had photographs in such and such edition, yeah." And I gave her specific uh, names. But I said, first of all, I would like to see a contact sheet. Now we're talking film, right? You may remember film vaguely, <laughs> old yeah. school film, yeah. Yes, it's, it's a strip of plastic with little holes oh. <laughs> along the edge in 35 millimeter format. But uh, you may vaguely remember it. They used to make contact sheets. I'm trying to think of how many we would put on an 8x10, about 30 or so, 30, something 30 like so. that. Uh, you would simply lay the film on the such guys paper, make an exposure, and uh, you would then have a sheet which gave you miniatures the size of the original negatives of each one of them, so you could look through and see which ones you wanted. The numbers were printed right on the side of the uh, strip of film. And uh, you simply ordered them that way. So I asked her for a contact sheet, first of all. And she said, yes, sir, no problem. And uh, she signed me up to pay the very small bill, a couple of dollars. And uh, they brought me out the contact sheet. And the fellow in the room said, just tell me what prints you want, and uh, you'll sign off with the young lady here, and I'll get you the prints. I said, okay, fine, great. And um, I looked over the contact sheet, and the evidence was blatantly there. You could see what was happening. You caught her actually doing the trick in some of the frames. But again, Bill Roll, the parapsychologist, and the Columbus Dispatch, and the photographer, and the editing group didn't want to see those. They skipped right by them because they weren't the pictures they wanted in the paper. The evidence is that they totally ignored it. Well, it was, as I say, very evident evidence. And uh, so I knew what I wanted. I ordered up the the prints I uh, gave them to the fellow in the dark room he went in and disappeared from sight the editor showed up at the door and he said what is this man doing here and the receptionist says he's ordered some prints and uh, he said uh, oh no he's not oh no I know who this is (laughs) and he moved over to me and he tried to take the contact sheet from me and I snatched it back and I had the receipt right there, and I got the receipt, and I held it up in front of him. And I said, I paid for this, this is my property, and I'm leaving. And he said, Oh, no, you're not. And he called the guard. And the guard came over and said, Yes, sir. He said, This man has merchandise that I want back. And I looked at the guard and I said, This is my receipt, this is the merchandise. I'm going out the door. If you stop me, I'll sue the ass off you and the entire newspaper. And I'm not kidding. I'm very, very serious. And I stuck the receipt into the envelope, walked to the door, and I didn't hear a word behind me. They didn't know what to do. And I walked outside, and I had the contact sheet. But the contact sheet was of such good quality that I was able to have it rephotographed, And the uh, enlargements made almost to the size of the originals,
2: but the evidence is right there. And that's going into my book. Excellent. Wow. Mm-hmm. Good job. It's mm. a good story. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so William Rolls, you know, I guess he's still active in some ways. He's retired, but uh, yeah, retired, sure. Yeah, well, so he's still working on. He did the, the haunting in Georgia story.
3: Yeah, you scratching around for some evidence where there is no evidence—it seems to be one of his specialties, as it is with most parapsychologists. And uh, he's strictly in it to, to get some book royalties out of it, and lots of luck, Bill. But uh, don't come around to my door when you're when you're broke again. Well, same with Ed and Lorraine Warren. I mean, you've had hands oh, yes, sure. with the Warrens as well. So. And the Warrens were much more referential
2: than anybody I can imagine. They were they were savages, of course. Right, with the Amityville case and others. Yes, ones. yes. So, so besides this case, and I, I know you talked about the Amityville case. Um, have you done a lot of work with ghost issues? There's not much to do.
3: That's yeah. the problem, you know. You, there's no um, no evidence there. That it's just anecdotal material. And, and, and fuzzy photographs and of course with orbs coming along recently as we all know uh, this is an artifact of digital photography and uh, it's a damn nuisance for people like fashion photographers who used to photograph uh, uh, models in the rain uh, and such and every raindrop shows up as an orb and you can't see the, the fashion model anymore but it's a, it's a specific um, uh, artifact of digital photography with automatic focus, and uh, it focuses on raindrops, unfortunately, in some cases. So, um, orbs has sort of replaced fuzzy photographs now, and fuzzy orbs are even better.
2: <laughs> so do you, if someone had a, a, a poltergeist case today, or they felt like they did, would, you, would they be eligible for the MDC? Oh,
3: absolutely, absolutely. No, no question of that. No. That sort of thing is eligible, and um, I'm not getting as many applications for the million dollars challenge. Um, the prize, I should say, uh, not as many as we used to. Uh, they come in every now and then, but usually they're so badly worded or so badly expressed that we can't make anything out of them. Literally, and the, the two paragraphs that I require in order to explain briefly what their their claim is, and anyone should be able to put it in two paragraphs. I didn't even say short paragraphs; they can have very long paragraphs. We have, in one case, thirty-seven pages of foolscap filled on both sides with crabbed handwriting down the margins of the paper and the whole thing and the envelope that it came in has writing on the back of it as well that's two paragraphs that's carrying the idea of a paragraph to uh to uh, to, uh, an extent that i never thought it could be expanded
1: well you could probably you know you could probably you know bend reality with his mind so why wouldn't be able to that's probably true yes yes
0: what was the claim
1: Oh, I have no idea.
3: I, I, I don't read, read it, it. out from all that. I, that stuff gets mailed back right away, and I simply <laughs> write two paragraphs, no more. James Randi, and I sign it. And of course, we usually never hear from them again, because they just want someplace to vent. They want to make a factual claim. It starts out, you know, once when I was a little girl, and you say, oh, Jesus, here we go. <laughs> you know, We've got a whole book written here. Uh, and, and they want to tell you their philosophy, their family history their religious inclinations and such I don't want to hear that
0: so do you get many uh, claims about cryptozoology or ghosts no
3: no not much Uh, uh, no I don't think I've had a claim in years on cryptozoology Um, you have
0: had them previously
3: yeah a couple and I don't even recall them it shows Mm -hmm. how significant
2: they were Mm. Well, you lived through the, uh, I guess, the Bigfoot flap that first started with the the Patterson-Gimlin film. Oh yeah. So.
3: Well, yes, but I wasn't active. Uh, right, right. At that time, you know, as an investigator. So, so
2: you were involved with PSYCOP very early.
3: Oh yes, so. I was uh, one of the founders of PSYCOP. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, one of the instigators. They usually call me a, a
2: Psychop. Yes, indeed. Do you use one word. Yeah. Yeah. You, are you okay with the name change? Or, what do you think about that? Oh,
3: yeah, well, I wasn't part of that.
2: Well, no, that, no, right. Know, but uh, no, I, I guess it's okay. I like Psycop a lot. I thought that was a fun name. Yeah, so. it. Yeah.
3: But uh, what an unwieldy title.
2: Yeah, the, well, hence the usefulness of Psycop. I don't
3: know. C-S-I-C-O-P.
2: So what about scary stuff in general? What's the most frightening kind of claims you've ever investigated?
3: I don't know that any of them... Well, not really to you,
2: but... <laughs>
3: <scary>. <laughs> They've been scary, but, uh, well, uh, some poltergeist claims uh, of stuff flying around the room. Of course, you always ask, uh, do you have a, a pubescent teenager in the house? And uh, so, yes, my, my little girl, but she knows nothing about this. Yeah, sure. right. <laughs> uh, like you, can, you can almost always connected up with a dissatisfied child. Or
2: some kind. I find it interesting that, 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 that the paranormalists would say, well, that's because they're the focus of the haunting. Yeah, well, yeah, they've kind of got <laughs> to rationalize. Right, and then I would say, well, no, that they're the cause of the haunting, which is a, a subtle distinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah they,
3: they have to rationalize it. They, they turn yeah. it around that the cause is the effect or whatever.
1: Yeah. Did I recently, I, I, I Massimo Polidoro did uh, did a piece for Skeptical Inquirer, uh, the Gear Two back, and he was talking specifically on on teenage hauntings and you know, hauntings that are caused by teenagers. Yes, I so, recall that. Yeah. yeah, Massimo's piece was pretty good.
3: Yeah, he does okay, doesn't he? Yeah, he's still I'm very proud okay. of that young kid, uh, young kid. Yeah, sure. <laughs> he's a father of two beautiful little girls now. My goodness, what a beautiful family this man has, and. Uh, I'll be seeing Massimo very shortly, within a month or so, as a matter
1: of fact. Say hi for me, I haven't seen him forever. Oh, so. I will, I will indeed.
0: I was going to ask you about the gyro ghost. Did you ever hear about that? It was a poltergeist story in Australia. I think it dates back to the 1920s, oh? and I believe Joe Nicol investigated it. It's very similar to the one that you've been discussing, this American case. Yeah, no, I don't know uh, With it a is. teenage girl who uh, was suffering from poltergeist activity in the house and actually lived in that area in, in rural Australia a number of years ago. And it was very difficult to find where the house was. All of the locals just shut down and wouldn't talk about it. To this day, it's still affecting them and uh, they get a lot of people who visit the area just wanting to track down the house and see where yeah, this... They're just
3: embarrassed over the whole thing. wish it would go away.
0: They, that's yes, possible. Yeah. It is a, a kind of haunted harassment.
2: Yeah, well, I think in most of those cases, I mean, the phenomena that's taking place... You know, the parents hear a crash, and they run into the room, and the child is sitting in the corner. I'm scared. You know, that just flew across the room, you know. And, and and of course, I would not accept that explanation from my child, you know. I, I would need to see it happen. I don't, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would. Right, right. <laughs> no, I don't need it,
3: apparently. Yeah. But, you know, Tina Resch was famous for this business of being photographed huddled up in the corner of the sofa, as if terrified, while the telephone was still in the air. But boy, when you saw the actual mechanism by whereby she did this, knowing that the photographer wasn't looking, and all she had to do was throw the telephone in go woo-woo-woo, like this, and then get under the blanket. And by that time, he pressed the shutter, and he got a picture of her cowering under a, a blanket and sort of peeking out, hoping that she got away with it.
2: The, the I think the people like us who do paranormal investigations... Um, they don't get as much respect in the skeptical community as people who are activists that do things that promote good medicine and things that save lives versus helping people sleep at night. I like I like both. I think the other stuff's covered pretty well, so I don't mind being in a little niche. But um, I find it interesting... Uh, how much exploitation of children is involved in this kind of work? Mm-hmm. The um, uh, Chip Coffee's show on on A and E, the uh, Psychic Kids, Children of the Paranormal. That ma- show makes me cringe. I mean, yeah, oh no,
3: th- this is, is uh, uh, exploitation of children. There's no question of it. Uh, the same thing happened with the Instituto Instituto Mas Vida uh, in uh, that was Mexico. Uh, These are kids who were uh, kids only of very wealthy families believe me, uh, who wanted to get in on the act of having a psychic child. And they were being taught how to see around blindfolds. And they were very successful in it. They toured the world. I uh, ran into them in person uh, in, uh, in uh, Tokyo when uh, I was, what, what, I did a whole series for the, uh, the station on paranormal investigations and whatnot. And I was introduced to the these um, little Mexican kids, and they were scared to death of me, uh, for good reason, as a matter of fact. And um, I didn't glower at them or anything like that. I did a lot of smiling, though my face was, uh, was breaking in doing that. But they were simply peeking around blindfolds, and they had learned how to do it. And it was incredible to see how obvious it was what they were doing. They would have a drawing made, a large-scale drawing, on a pad of paper, then they would hold it in their laps and sit with their heads perked up in the air so they could peek down their cheeks at what the drawing was in their lap. Otherwise, they couldn't see it if it was held up straight in front of them, you see, where the blindfold really did inhibit their eyesight. And we blew them away on this Japanese television program. Uh, they, they did their whole demo, and the audience was all, 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 oh, subarashigesne. They were all just astonished at what was going on. And uh, I just bided my time, and then when the time came, I simply put the piece of paper in underneath the chin, and they stopped reading. They couldn't read the text anymore. And I, I don't know why, except that they couldn't see because they were peeking underneath the blindfold.
1: Maybe it somehow inhibited their psychic powers or something. Uh, yes, you, yes. you do have that strong effect.
3: Yeah, yeah, I do. Negative <laughs> vibrations. Well, oh, the, the negative vibrations thing—that's the one I really like, guys. Oh, that—that that is something else. As a matter of fact, when I did the last uh, homeopathic test in the UK, now the Royal Society cooperated with me on this. And uh, we offered the prize, bare naked, in other no preliminary test or anything like that. We would award the million dollars if the test was successful. And I knew, uh, I took a chance in doing that, but um, I knew that it was in the hands of the Royal Society and they would do it very properly and, uh, and uh, carefully. Uh, the protocol would be very good and it was absolutely excellent. And They had a, a very good statistician working on it to handle the figures. Yeah, the Royal Society supervised this uh, test of homeopathy. Uh, which was uh, broadcast on BBC, and I told them, this is how I take care of this evil vibrations thing, I told them that uh, they should go ahead with the thing, they could submit the protocol to me, and I would uh, iron it out if it needed any, and the protocol was absolutely perfect, and I simply got in touch with them, I said, no, the protocol is approved, and they then called me and said, now we're going to hold the test on, and hold on, I don't want to hear a word. Don't tell me when you're going to do it or even if you're going to do it. I want you to do the test, then wait at least 48 hours, and then call me and say, we have done the test, and don't announce to me what the results were. As a matter of fact, you should not know what the results are because I want to appear on camera, seated in front of the cameras and uh, with the statistician beside me, and I want him to press the right combination of keys to bring the graph up ...on the screen so that he and I see it for the very first time and no one else has seen it. And uh, that I'll accept the results for whatever they are. And uh, now this is taking a bit of a chance, of course. But uh, I felt I knew I had very good people on all ends of this thing. And they said, but what is this 48 hours after? I said, because... The excuse they come up with immediately was that I put out negative vibrations because I knew when and where the test was being done, and I could focus my vibrations on London or wherever it was being done. And I said, so don't tell me. Well, okay. They found that very strange, but it was a, it was a good revision because that's the first thing they come up with. Mm-hmm. No, you used your vibrations and your psychic powers to inhibit the results of, of the test. So they can't argue that now, of course and of course what they did was uh, we had the, the British Homeopathic Society yes they were in charge of the whole damn thing they approved the protocol they were there, they were present they approved it, this is the way it should be done, the, it was done they said yes we expect positive results from this. they signed the documents and the whole thing they said no we want to see the results no we're going to wait for Rent James Ryan to arrive, oh drat you know, they didn't want that, but I arrived and I sat in front of the the camera, and they clicked it up on there, and there were the error bars, and there was all the data within the error bars, exactly what we expect, not reaching outside uh, of the error bars and showing significant results. Immediately, they said, oh, the tests weren't done properly. That's the only explanation, because we know that homeopathy works. Duh! (laughs) This is proof that it doesn't work, or it's proof for this particular set of tests with this size of database, on this particular case, this date this temperature With the moon it, in this phase, you know, okay. yeah, yeah. You know, all these conditions. it didn't work this time let's do it again but they don't want to do it again so, no they have no interest in doing it again no we've already proved it for ourselves we don't need any further
2: right they already believe so but mm-hmm. they have a million
3: dollars hanging in the uh, in the air there that big carrot hanging right in front of them they could have snapped it up right there
2: yeah but when you're selling pills that have no uh, ingredients uh, that's, that's a pretty good profit margin oh no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah might need a billion dollar challenge you know we can't get
3: the, the,
2: the, the most popular
3: Homeopathic remedy is made from duck liver. It's a, a silicochrome or whatever it is. Um, that flat means, means duck liver, I guess. I, I have no idea what it means. I don't care. Spoke uh, gras, But it's for a flu <laughs> symptoms, you see. And that's the most popular one that they sell. And the Boiron Pharmaceutical Company in France, they they make it and they ship it off to, to the U.K., I presume. And uh, that's on all the shelves and such and it says right in there in Latin that it's made from duck livers well, we do some calculation the dilution of duck liver in this uh, medicine means that with one duck liver uno, eins, in one duck liver alone and you can wait for the duck to die of old age if you want pamper it, treat it, feed it caviar I don't know what ducks eat, but maybe caviar let the duck die extract the liver after the duck is well dead, and uh, make all the pills you can. That would be enough to fill the entire solar system with the sun at the center and the orbit of Pluto at the outside, though it's been demoted as a planet. I'll accept it, see, for this purpose, and a little bit further. Now, that's a huge sphere of influence. That's a hell of a lot of pills. Now, I don't know what the figure is, and I don't want to know, and who cares? It wouldn't mean anything anyway. That's how many of these homeopathic capsules you could make with one duck liver.
2: That's astonishing. If that
3: isn't dilute, I don't know what the word (laughs) dilute means.
2: Well, Randy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you talking to us today. It's
3: been a great pleasure, and uh, I hope that this uh, maybe stirs up some um, controversy. It's not a bad thing at all and get some people thinking maybe in a slightly different direction. Let's hope it does. And when your book comes out, we'd love to have you back. Yes, well, that's months away because I've got it all in the computer, you know, and sorting data, oh, jeez. <laughs> I have too much information now. It's too good, and there's too much of it. To get it reduced to a book, it's not all that easy, but we're working on it. What's the title again? A Magician in the Laboratory. Rush out to your bookstore and place advance orders right this morning. <laughs>
2: Thanks.
0: Mr. dog
2: tina Resch had a troubled life she was married and in an abusive relationship by the time she was 16 by 25 she was twice divorced and had a three-year-old daughter she moved to Carrollton, georgia to be closer to william roll and look for a better life and she moved into a trailer with a man named david heron they only lived together for a couple of months before her daughter was murdered at the end of the little girl's life over a period of just a few days she received a large number of injuries. On the day the girl died she had been left alone for 6 hours in the care of David Heron. And when Tina came home although the two disagree on some details of their story Heron came out and told her that the daughter was unconscious and not breathing and they went to the hospital but it was too late. Heron claimed that the girl had just gotten sleepy and when he went to check on her she was not breathing. Autopsy results later showed that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Heron got a 20-year sentence and is eligible for parole in 2012. And Christina, fearing a jury would find her guilty, took a plea deal that gave her a life sentence rather than face the death penalty. After hearing Randy's complaints about William Roll during our interview, I was curious about that claim. Tina, or Christina as she came to be known, had a crummy life before meeting William Roll and afterwards. Was she responsible for her own child's death? It seems clear that the abuse was going on while she was there, whether she was doing it or just failing to prevent it. I'll leave you with this observation. Where was Christina while her child lay dying in a trailer? She was off with a friend working on an autobiography of her life as a poltergeist victim. Monster Talk is produced with the support of Skeptic Magazine. Today we've been talking about the Columbus poltergeist case and our guest was James the Amazing Randy. We hope you enjoyed the program. If you want to help support us, please tell a friend about the show and give us a review on iTunes. You should now also be able to click on social networking links on our website to promote each episode. Music today was by David Beard, and the Munster Talk theme was by Peach Stealing Monkeys. All music used by permission. Thanks for listening.